It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. Coming up on the show today, we hear the latest from the Vital Biodiversity Conference in Geneva. We've seen a star further away than ever before. And we're hearing about the genetics of blood sucking or why vampire bats can survive on a pure blood diet. (laughs) Yum. Uh, (laughs) I've also got an audio quiz for you that you can play along with. And we've got a good news gene therapy story. And remember, if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20, you can get a massive 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist. That link is newscientist.com slash pod20. So let's start with the good news story. Hurrah. Yeah. <laughs> this is about a world first gene therapy that can be applied to the skin and has successfully treated a rare genetic disorder that is referred to as the worst disease you've never heard of. Rowan spoke to our Australian reporter, Alice Klein, about this game-changing treatment. Yeah, and though I I have to say, though it is a good news story, do be warned, that label, the worst disease you've never heard of, that's not given lightly. Uh, Here's the story. Hi, Alice. So, look, this is a breakthrough because it's the first gene therapy that can be applied to the skin. But before we go any further, can you remind us what gene therapy actually is? Because... We've been hearing so much about gene editing and gene therapy, it kind of gets forgotten. Yeah, so you're right. Gene therapies have been around for a while, but they've taken a long time to get working safely. And so they've sort of gone in and out of fashion. But they're basically designed for people who have certain genes that don't work properly. The idea is to inject healthy copies of these genes into these people's cells so that they these new genes can start performing the necessary functions. And we've got gene therapies being developed for a whole range of genetic conditions like cystic fibrosis and sickle cell anemia, but they usually have to be injected inside the body, whereas this is the first gene therapy that can simply be put on the skin in the form of a gel. Okay, right. So it's totally different to gene editing. Yes, yes, totally different because in the case of gene therapy, you're inserting new genes into cells, not actually changing the genes that are already in there. So it doesn't come with, you know, the same sort of ethical quandaries. And the newly inserted genes eventually break down. So it's not like you're causing any permanent changes. Okay. So this new gene therapy gel has been designed to treat a genetic skin condition called recessive dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa. And why is it uh, the worst disease you've never heard of? Yeah, so I actually went to a dermatology conference a few years ago and I was walking around the, the poster section And I just suddenly stopped dead in my tracks as I came across a poster about epidermolysis bullosa because I had some some pictures of people with the condition and I just could not believe how horrific it looked. 
basically people who are, who are born with a condition, and that's about one in 800,000 people, they have a defective form of a collagen gene. And that means that they can't properly make the collagen proteins that we need to give our skin its structure. And as a result, their skin is extremely fragile. It easily rips and blisters and they often end up with painful open wounds all over their bodies. Oh, God. And yeah, it's just something that's really stuck in my mind. Um, so I've been following the research on it since in the hope that somebody somewhere comes up with a cure. Okay. And uh, so this is very hopeful. And how does the therapy work? Well, because people with this condition have faulty collagen genes, the idea is to give them new healthy collagen genes. And to do this, Peter Marinkovich at Stanford University and his colleagues engineered herpes simplex virus so that could deliver healthy collagen genes into skin cells. So herpes simplex, that's the one, the virus that causes cold sores. Yes, yes, that's what it's infamous for. But actually, in this case, they use an inactivated form so that it couldn't replicate or cause disease. So basically, it's just being used to infect skin cells and deliver these new collagen genes inside the cells. Right. So once they did that, then they incorporated that gene therapy into a gel so that it could be applied directly to the skin. And obviously that makes it a lot easier to use than other gene therapies. Okay. And now they've gone ahead and used it and tested it. Yeah. So it's actually recently been tested in 31 children and adults with the condition. And it had really, really impressive results. So a lot of them had um, these massive open wounds and most of these treated wounds healed completely. Wow. And yeah, so I actually um, was lucky enough to speak to one of the trial participants, um, a 22-year-old called Vincenzo Mascoli, who travelled all the way from Italy to the US to trial the gene therapy. And he just had fantastic results. So he had this excruciatingly painful open wound that covered actually his entire back and had been there since he was two years old. And now it's almost completely closed thanks to this therapy. Wow. Yeah, so that means he no longer has pain in his back and he can sleep on his back and he can have baths and just all these things that we take for granted, but which he couldn't do before because it, it was just so painful. Wow, so it's just and totally changed his life. It's totally changed his life. It's and amazing. I mean, he, he had it in a clinical trial setting, but now he's hoping that the therapy will be approved by regulators so that he can use it on the rest of his body because he also has these open wounds all over his arms and legs. And he even sometimes gets blisters in his eyes and throat, which means he can't oh. open his eyes or eat any solids. It just oh. yeah, it sounds, it sounds quite, quite yeah. horrible. Okay, so look, the good news is that this is, it seems to be working. It needs to get off the trial phase now and be approved. Is that right? And then it could really be rolled out and improve the quality of life for, for many more people. Yeah, so hopefully um, they'll apply for approval in the next few months um, and that'll make it more widely available. And it's, yeah, it, it could make a real difference because up until now, these the people with this condition, they've had absolutely nothing. There have been no specific therapies. And actually Marinkovic, the, the guy that developed the gene therapy, when I spoke to him, he said he's been trying to come up with a treatment for this condition for over 25 years and wow. he said he's just so thrilled that he now has something to offer them that works and doesn't appear to have any serious side effects. So you can imagine just how gratifying that would be after working yeah. on it for so oh, long. That's amazing. And look, you know, using the, the herpes virus as this transporter to get the, the genes in, are there any other skin conditions that can be treated in a similar way like this? 
Yeah, so the company that Marinkovich has partnered with, which is called Crystal Biotech in the US, they're also developing gene therapies for some other genetic skin conditions like uh, one called Netherton syndrome and one called congenital ichthyosis, which are also conditions that, I mean, most of us have never heard of, but they really need treatments too. And then interestingly, they're also developing cosmetic gene therapies to reverse skin aging and treat acne scars and things. And obviously that doesn't have the same urgent clinical need, but I'm sure it would be of a lot of interest to many people if it worked. Astronomy now, and the news this week is that astronomers have found a star more than 27 billion light years away. Leia, what's the story? Well, this is the most distant individual star we've ever seen. 27 billion light years away, we've seen galaxies that far, but never individual single stars. And it may help us understand the very first stars after the Big Bang. Because of sort of light travel time, the star as we see it now existed just about 900 million years after the Big Bang, which, while it sounds like a long time, is in astronomical terms very close. Um, So that could provide us a really valuable window into that time in the early universe. Can you spell this out for me, Leia? Because like, if it's 27 billion light years away, and we're seeing it as it was 900 million years after the Big Bang, but the Big Bang was, you know, 13.7 billion years ago. So how do we, how does that work? So that works because of the expansion of the universe. So while we think the Big Bang happened a little over 13.7 billion years ago, since then, the universe has been expanding. So it's basically like if I throw a ball to you and as soon as it leaves my hand, I run away from you as fast as I possibly can. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, let's say the ball takes three light seconds to get to you, which would be a very fast pitch from far away. (laughs) Um, And uh, if the ball takes three light seconds to get to you and I'm running away as fast as I can, by the time it gets to you, I might be four light seconds away. Right. And so that's happening on a much larger scale. So it's the oldest star that we've ever seen, as well as the furthest away. Are those two sort of necessarily linked? I think we would refer to it as as the earliest star we've ever seen, Mm. um, because, you know, right now that star is probably long gone because of the light travel thing, as I mentioned earlier. So it is the earliest star we've ever seen, individual Right. And so this is not in our galaxy then, because it's so far away. No, no, no. It's in another galaxy that we have seen via a process called gravitational lensing, in which something close by sort of magnifies the light from something farther away. Right. So this galaxy, because of how it's stretched by the lensing, is called the Sunrise Arc. And that's mm. the galaxy the star's in. That's poetic. Yeah. So now that we've detected it in this way um what can we sort of ask of it what can it tell us about the early universe yeah so the researchers that detected it already have time booked to look at it with the james webb space telescope and one thing they're really hoping to find out is how big it is because we're not sure how much exactly it's being magnified so while we know how far away it is we don't really know how big or bright it is And we expect stars in the early universe to have been pretty different from stars now, just based on the amount of heavy elements that were around back then, because those are forged in earlier generations of stars. So this could help us learn about how exactly those stars were different and how they worked compared to stars now. 
And let's take a break. Have you ever wanted to know how to unleash your brain's potential or what makes it unique or how it makes thoughts and memories? It's often said that the human brain is the most complex object in the known universe. So taking steps towards understanding how your brain works can really help you make the most of it. New Scientist Academy is a CPD accredited online learning platform which offers a range of courses. In how your brain works and how to make the most of it, neurological experts delve into all of these fascinating questions and more. Plus, we've made it even better, adding more quizzes, downloadable video transcripts and an updated fresh design. This mind-blowing course is suitable for learners at all levels and right now, New Scientist Academy is offering a massive 40% off this newly relaunched brain course. Check out newscientist.com slash courses, select our brain course and use coupon code podcast40 at the checkout to redeem your 40% off today and begin your exciting learning journey. The offer ends midnight, Friday the 15th of April. We've also got a new live event to tell you about. The Science of Eating Well is a hybrid event held at Conway Hall in London and streamed live. It's taking place on Thursday the 21st of April from 7pm. Every day we're bombarded with messages about healthy eating, from gimmicky diets to the latest superfoods. But what is the truth behind claims about boosting your gut bacteria or eating foods to improve your mental health? Join leading nutritional expert Megan Rossi and chartered psychologist Kimberly Wilson for the facts about gut health, the gut-brain axis and our emotional relationship with food. Go to newscientist.com slash eating well to get all the info. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, let's talk about action on the biodiversity crisis. As you'll know, this is at least as important to fix as climate change and is actually very much interwoven with that problem. Yeah, and over the last couple of weeks in Geneva, there's been uh, officials from 195 countries meeting to try and thrash out a draft deal called the Global Biodiversity Framework. And that's basically a Paris agreement, except for biodiversity. And this is ahead of the big summit to finalise the deal in Kunming in China later this year that you know we've been talking about. That's the UN Biodiversity Conference. It's COP15, it's called. Yeah, so these are completely vital talks. Um, mm. They'll be about making sure we can allow the planet to recover some of its lost biodiversity over the next decade with proposals to increase the extent of protected areas and to stem species extinctions. Um, and guess what? The negotiators failed to fully agree on any <laughs> of the targets or even the overarching mission. Uh, yeah, so disappointing, but weirdly not that unexpected. But, you know, in the week that we've got confirmation of a, another mass bleaching event on the Great Barrier Reef. And just a couple of weeks after, we reported the real threat to the whole integrity of the Amazon rainforest. Uh, you know, after these things, we have this failure in Geneva. Um, and I saw this response from Linda Kruger. She's the global biodiversity policy lead for the Nature Conservancy. And she said, be under no illusions, we're running out of time to secure a future that is ecologically stable, a requirement for future generations to thrive. 
Yeah, our reporter Adam Vaughan has the details in a piece he's just filed. We'll add a link to the show notes. But basically, there is a kind of draft, but it's littered with square brackets, meaning countries have yet to agree to those bits. Mm. And the draft is starting very slowly to converge on a commitment to halt and reverse biodiversity loss by 2030. <laughs> we're like, we're like we're going to be lucky if there's any left by then. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the worry. Um, yes. There should be some. And what we do know, at least, is that nature is resilient to an extent and can rebound to some extent if we give it a chance. It's just that we've not really been giving it much of a chance at all, have we? And of course, if something goes extinct, it can't rebound. In terms of positive signs, there may be progress on a target to protect 30% of the world's oceans and lands by 2030. We currently protect just over 16% of land and uh, nearly 8% of oceans. And just like with the climate negotiations at COP26, one of the sticking points here has been finding money for developing countries to pay for conservation projects. And the draft is calling for rich countries to offer an extra $10 billion a year for funding to protect nature in poorer countries. But in reality, the figure needs to be more like $60 billion a year to be effective. And then there are countries like Brazil and India who want funding to eventually rise to about $700 billion a year. And that sounds like a lot, and that's why it's been a sticking point. But look, it has to be said again and again that the money, this isn't money that we're just chucking away. The executive secretary of the Convention for Biological Diversity, uh, Elizabeth Umrema, she showed that every dollar spent on ecosystem restoration accrues between $3 and $75 in return, and that the costs of inaction run into the tens of trillions of dollars. Yeah, it's a shame, right? As a point, we just keep needing to make that over and over. But I'd have thought, you know, we're decades in now to thinking about ecosystem services and how important it is to actually have functioning nature on our planet. Yeah, and and yet we do still to keep have to keep making this point. Um, and another way of looking at it, the insurance group Swiss Re, they estimated the value of biodiversity at $33 trillion a year. And they found that large economies would lose about 10% of their GDP in the next decade because of the costs associated with biodiversity loss, like, you know, all those things like flood defence, clean water, pollination, and those sorts of ecosystem services, like you say, $33 trillion a year it's worth. So, you know, of course we should pay $700 billion a year, near $700 billion a year. And we're going back to Alice now for a bloodthirsty life form of the week. Hello again, Alice. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had a story about the rejuvenating effects of young blood. And this week, you've got one about actual vampire bats. They're the only mammals on Earth to feed exclusively on blood. And now we've got to understand a bit more about the genetic changes that have allowed them to do that, right? Yeah, so these bats have had to evolve special mechanisms for coping with their blood-only diet because aside from being quite nightmarish, um, it's actually quite challenging. So if you think about it, I mean, blood isn't the most nutritious or filling food choice. It's mostly just water with a whole lot of iron and a very low calorie content. And actually just to get the energy that they need, these bats have to drink 1.4 times their own body weight in blood at every single mealtime. Yeah, I I was really amazed by that because I remember as a kid, <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I remember thinking blood is the best meal because it has everything in it you need. But I didn't really realise about, of course, it's just mostly water and you'd have to just eat loads of it if that was your only food stuff. 
Uh, so how have the bats evolved to get around the challenge of, of this? Well, we already knew that they have some pretty clever tricks. Uh, so, for example, they have these seat heat sensors in their face that allow them to hone in on victims' blood vessels. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they have very sharp teeth to precisely pierce these blood vessels. And something that I find really fascinating is they've got this anticoagulant in their saliva, uh, which is called draculin for obvious reasons, <laughs> that stops blood from clotting while they drink it. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that seems amazing to me. Yeah, I, I knew these things, but it's the genetics that the next trick that I didn't know. Yeah, so we now know that they've got even more tricks after German researchers sequenced the vampire bat genome in, in very great detail and compared it with the genomes of 26 other bat species to compare them. One thing that they discovered was that these bats have lost a gene called REP15 which seems to have allowed them to excrete more iron so that they don't get overloaded with it when they're gorging on all that blood. And this is another thing that astounded me. Their relative dietary iron intake is 800 times greater than ours. Wow. So obviously being able to excrete it is pretty important for these bats. And then they've also lost this gene called CYP39A1, which could explain their relatively sophisticated social and cognitive skills since the loss of this gene, uh, we think, is associated with enhanced learning and memory. Okay. And that's because they they feed each other. When one misses out on a blood meal, they, they're quite social and, and share in it and almost altruistically share their blood, don't they? Yeah. So because blood has so few calories, they're at risk of starvation. So it's really important for them to stick together socially so they can depend on each other, basically, if they don't have enough food. So, yeah, as you say, we know that vampire bats often regurgitate up some of their blood for their for their roost mates that haven't been able to find a bite to eat. <laughs> and another interesting thing about these bats is they practice social distancing when they're sick and they actually isolate <laughs> themselves from the rest of their colony. So they may even be more advanced than us on that front. That's amazing. Um, and any other genetics that we found out? Yeah, there are some other genes that they've lost along the course of their evolution basically just because they don't really need them anymore. So, for example, they've lost genes for telling the difference between sweet and bitter foods, since this is redundant if you're just eating the same blood meals day in, day out. And they've also lost some genes for controlling blood sugar, since they ingest so few carbohydrates anyway, they don't really need them. And I guess all of this suggests that we should probably spare a thought for Count Dracula and his other vampire cronies, because it turns out that feasting solely on blood is a much bigger hassle than we realise. Who knew that the reason Robert Pattinson and all those vampires in the Twilight movies, the reason they look so pale is not because they don't like the sunlight, but because they're so undernourished. Yeah, I can sort of see that now. All right, let's have another audio quiz segment. Uh, is this is this a new regular thing after the orangutan kiss squeak? <laughs> um, yeah, let's try and make it as regular as we can. So actually, it's not so much an audio quiz as I think it is a moment to escape into nature. Let's call it a sound garden for you all to wander around in. Sounds lovely, if not for the pressure of having to make a, a sensible guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's obviously it's just a bit of fun. I've got three. I've got noises made by three animals here, and let's see if you can guess them.
That is a boat. <laughs> it does sound like a boat, but uh, it is an animal. <laughs> or maybe a humpback whale. Ah. Uh, well, I was going to guess something big. That's as far as I'd got. Yeah, uh, no, it's actually a blue whale. So um, well done, Leia. You get the points for that. So that's recorded in Monterey Bay off central California. And my blue whale fact here is that the International Monetary Fund found that when you add up the value of all the carbon sequestered by these great whales during their lifetime, you get all these benefits like better fisheries and ecotourism. But the whale, one whale is worth more than $2 million just in terms of its carbon drawdown value. So the entire global stock of whales then comes to a trillion dollars. There you go. You can put, a, you can put a, a price tag on a whale as a carbon offsetting mechanism. Well, there's your ecosystem services right there. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Okay, here's another sound. I should say that there is a theme to all of these. They're all recorded off Monterey Bay. So there's a clue for you. Uh, something aquatic. Um, is that, I don't know, like a, a seal of some kind blowing through their nose? <laughs> Maybe a dolphin? Yeah. Um, actually, it was, it was an orca. That was a killer mm. whale. In Monterey Bay, they've got this listening post like spread out over a 52-kilometre-long cable with hydrophones all along the way, and you can listen to them live, actually. I'll put a link in the notes. So if you want to just go and immerse yourself in the waters off central California, you can and listen to what's going past the hydrophones. I don't know. That last one sounded like screaming. I don't know if yeah, I want was... to listen to that while I'm working. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's true, actually. Sometimes you get nicer ones. And, and actually, with killer whales, you know, there's been a big ecological thing going on with them because as great whale numbers went down we saw killer whales having to change their their food and they they started going for sea otters instead of great whales and that meant that sea urchin numbers went up as the otters went down and then the urchins ate all the kelp off california and the kelp population suffered so you know this is another reason why restoring the great whale population has this amazing knock-on effect on the ecosystem um and here's number three that's quite a nice one that that feels more familiar is that a humpback yeah that is a humpback whale very very impressed it's the classic whale song from 90s meditation tapes yeah (laughs) well that's it um we can put that on loop and you can go and meditate now that's it for this week do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen thanks to our guests this week alice klein and leah crane i'm rowan hooper and i'm penny sachet bye for now and take care we'll see you next week bye bye this podcast is produced by og podcasts find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk AdWanted UK is the provider of single-source media data for agencies, media owners, brands and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader 
from Ad Wanted UK.